Well, good morning. Thank you, <laughs> thank you so much for being here with us at Trinity this morning. My name is Tom. I'm one of the pastors here. And it is my distinct pleasure to stand before you this morning on this, the very first Sunday of fall. Uh, I think fall is, is quite easily the best season of the year for a lot of reasons, for a lot of different kinds of people. Uh, if you're a nature lover, you look forward to this time of year for beautiful leaves and crisp temperatures that we're supposed to get next week, I think. Uh, if you're a fitness buff, this is the time of year for races, 5Ks, 10Ks, marathons, and for hiking. Uh, if you like sports, you get the baseball playoffs starting, you get NBA starting next week, and of course you get football, right? And if you just like to eat, you've got chili cook-offs and you've got all manner of pumpkin-flavored treats that are being made this time of year. One of the best and most universally loved things about fall, though, is of course the holidays. Uh, we're just about a month away from Halloween, and then you actually get all but about four days of the Christmas season in fall, if you think about it. And then right there in between those two, kind of overlooked because retailers can't quite commercialize it all the way, is Thanksgiving. Uh, we kind of forget about Thanksgiving. It's kind of a speed bump between those two holidays. And if we do think about it, we think of it for food and watching sports, uh, we kind of forget that when Abraham Lincoln first inaugurated Thanksgiving back in 1864, it was meant to be a day of thanks to God for his blessings. Well, we're only about two months ahead of schedule, so we're going to go ahead and celebrate Thanksgiving today here as a church. And the reason for that is because as we turn to our text, which is Colossians 1, 3 through 8, we indeed have a feast in store for us. And as we come to this feast, it is my hope that you will be challenged and encouraged and will finally delight to give thanks to God for the gospel. So turn with me, if you would, to Colossians 1, 3 through 8, and I will read this passage for us. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learn this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has told us about your love in the Spirit. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, would you please show us your promises in your Word? Would you help us to believe each and every one of them? And would you give us fresh desire for Jesus Christ this morning so that we can leave this place and follow you in faithfulness this week? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you did not get a listening guide, that is going to help you as we unpack this feast. So if you need one, just put your hand up, and uh, someone from the back will get that to you. Like I said, we have a feast in store for us, but I will admit up front that the structure of this feast is not the easiest to follow. It's no simple appetizer, salad, entree, dessert, and you're done. 
Um, in fact, one commentator that I read said, there's really no logical progression of thought here. It's just sort of an association of ideas. Uh, but nevertheless, we're going to feast on this text. What we will feast upon first is the example of Paul's prayers of thanksgiving. And then upon three reasons he gives us in this text to give thanks for the gospel. First, the example of Paul's prayers, looking at verse 3. Paul starts off this section of the letter telling the Colossians how he's been praying for them. This is very typical of letters written during this time, both by Christians and by pagans, by secular people. Uh, Greek letters of this time usually had a prayer of thanksgiving to the gods, plural. But Paul, of course, is going to begin his letter with a prayer to the one God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is very, very typical for Paul. If you read uh, Philippians 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, you're going to see very similar types of prayers with similar structure and subject matter. Uh, So this tells us that Paul is serious about giving thanks to God for his hearers. And a few details about Paul's prayer of thanksgiving that we need to touch on here. First, we notice that Paul gives thanks with others. The the verb form there in the Greek is plural, and it's well translated, we pray for you. So Paul is doing this with other believers. It's possible that he's referring to communal gatherings of prayer with other believers there in the prison, that he's getting together with them and giving thanks for the Colossians to God when they do so. And we know for a fact that Paul is writing this with at least one other believer, Because David unpacked for us last week, he's writing this with Timothy, who's probably his secretary as they're writing this. Either way, Paul is not going it alone when it comes to thanksgiving. He is doing it together with other believers. Second, we see that Paul is thanking God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as DJ pointed out when we were going through the Apostles' Creed, it's easy to gloss over this type of language. like, Yeah, that's the basics. That's just basic Christianese. Paul kind of has to say that, right? But we need to keep in mind that Paul is going somewhere with this. Paul loves to unpack in his introductory prayers all of the great themes of this letter. And as David unpacked for us last week, we know the Colossians are up against some kind of false teaching. We, We aren't for sure what it is. We only have half the conversation here. But whatever it is, it's going up against the basics of Christianity. It's going up against God as he is revealed by Jesus Christ. And that's what it's really significant here. This letter is being written by a former Christian killer, by a Jew. And if you know the background of the Old Testament, uh, the word father is not used there very often to refer to God. Only about 15 times in the entire Old Testament is it used that way. So it's strange for a Jew to use this word to refer to God, but it's not strange for a Christian. Because if you read just the the New Testament Gospels, they use the word Father to refer to God about 165 times, just in those four books, almost exclusively by Jesus. So over and against this false teaching, Paul is pointing them back to God, and not just to God in general, but God as he is revealed by Jesus Christ. And Paul specifies that God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and this too is remarkable because, as we'll see, Paul probably didn't know the members of this church personally. He he knows Epaphras, 
Uh, and he's heard about them from Epaphras, but that's about the only connection he has with most of them. We might be tempted to call such people strangers. They've, they've never met. They've only corresponded through an intermediary. But they are not strangers to Paul because they and Paul have in common the most important thing in the world. They share one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the same God to which Paul gives thanks for what is happening in the lives of the Colossians, as we'll read further. And finally, we see that Paul and his fellow prisoners are giving thanks to God for the Colossians frequently. Now, the word always there in verse 3 is a little bit of hyperbole. Um, it's very, very common in Semitic writing. If you read the Psalms or you look at the parables of Jesus, it's very black and white language, a lot of always, never. This does not mean that Paul is 24-7, 60 minutes and every hour, giving thanks for them in prayer. But it does mean that he is doing it frequently, regularly, and consistently. Paul's prayers aren't like a lot of our prayers. You know, we'll hear that someone is not doing well, a friend, a family member, a friend of a friend. We might pray right then and there in that moment, which is great, but most of us don't put that in a regular rotation of things that we're going to be bringing to God on a, on a consistent basis. They're kind of one-offs. Paul doesn't pray this way for the Colossians. He makes it a priority to pray for them and give thanks to them to God. Prayer and thanksgiving matter to God, and that is reason enough for it to matter to you today. You need to give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, regularly in prayer. And this means, first of all, that you need to have a habit of regular prayer. You need to be praying consistently day in and day out. Now, I think we can have different uh, attitudes about what kind of days are most conducive to prayer. Sometimes if it's an easy day and you've got a lot of spare time, your mind might go to prayer, might go to giving thanks to God for what a good day that you're having. I think for a lot of us, prayer is easier on hard days because we come to the end of our strength and it drives us to our knees to cry out to God for help. That is why it is so essential that we have a consistent and regular pattern of daily prayer because you need God just as much on easy days as bad days, just as much on days where it's easy to pray as it is hard to pray. And so that you will be prepared to pray on both types of days, you need to make it consistent and not based on the kind of day that you're having. This also means that you need to cultivate a thankful mindset. Now, we're going to get to what Paul was specifically thankful for in just a little bit, but uh, my observation is that as 21st century Americans, we aren't thankful for a whole lot of anything. Uh, we live in the most affluent and comfortable society that has ever existed, but my perception is that we focus overwhelmingly on the negative, on what we wish was different. Uh, we joke about third world problems sometimes. My cell phone can't connect to the internet, or my TV picture isn't quite right. And, and we will joke about them in conversation, but when that's happening, when you're trying to watch the football game and you can't get your TV to work or you can't get uh, the text from your friend about where to have dinner, it doesn't feel like just a, a first world problem. It feels like a crisis because we lack a thankful mindset to God. What about you? Do you make it a habit to speak and think in a thankful way? Do you dwell on what God has done for you, what he is doing for you, or are you focusing on what you wish was different? 
When you pray, do you go straight to your list of needs, your list of wants and requests, some of them no doubt holy, some of them no doubt very appropriate, or do you have some time blocked off to thank God for what He is doing for you, what He has done for you? But as we'll see as we read on in verse 4, Paul in this passage is thankful for something very, very specific. And it's here that we have the first of three reasons in this text to give thanks to God for the gospel. Namely, that the gospel produces faith, love, and hope. So look with me at verses 4 and the first part of verse 5. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. So verse 4 begins with the word for, appropriately enough. And this ties what's going on in this verse to the preceding verse. So Paul in verse 3 has said, I'm giving thanks to God for you, Colossians. And here in verse 4, we have what is prompting the thanksgiving. And, And what we have that prompts this thanksgiving is given in three parts, faith, love, and hope. And if you've read the Bible or you've just been in a Christian bookstore, you're probably familiar with the famous triad, the faith, hope, and love. A little bit different order here that shows up most famously in 1 Corinthians 13. This is actually all over Paul's introductory material. He almost always, in giving thanks for his hearers, mentions their faith, their love, or their hope, at least one. And one commentator suggests that these three taken together are sort of a compendium, if you will, a comprehensive total look at the Christian life. So when Paul is saying he's thankful for these things in them, he's not saying, well, your lives are kind of mixed, but you've got these things sprinkled in here. No, he is saying you are living out the Christian life. You're, you're doing all of these things comprehensively and holistically, and I'm thankful to God for them. Uh, let's look at these each in detail. First, we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it makes sense to start here because this is prior to everything else. If there is no faith in the Lord Jesus, there can be no hope and there can be no love because the faith is what produces everything else. And and it needs to be said that faith is not the thing that we bring to the equation so that God then has what he needs to save us. It's not that God does everything except for faith and we bring faith to the equation that completes it and now we're saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says... We are saved by grace through faith, and this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Christian faith does not depend on the Christian. It is a miracle in the truest sense. If you see faith in someone's life, it is only there because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, put it there. And that is something to thank God for. But faith in the Lord Jesus does not just refer to Jesus as the object of faith, as the thing that faith is pointing at, but it also refers to Jesus as the Lord over the entire faith-filled life of the Christian. Uh, Last week, we saw that Paul refers to the Colossians as saints in Christ Jesus, as David explained, because Jesus is not just the door that gets us into the Christian life, but he is the Lord and master over the entire household of the Christian life. And we live under his rule and for his glory each and every day. And this fits with the overall theme of this letter, Christ over all, the supremacy of Christ. For he is Lord and master over the entire faith-filled life of the Christian. 
And as we consider the second element here, the love that the Colossians have for all the saints, we see how that life is worked out. Uh, it is well said that we are saved by faith apart from works, but faith that saves works. And it works out in this way. It works out in love for all the saints. In Galatians 5, 6, Paul says that what matters in the Christian life is faith working through love. That's this pattern again. And the love that springs from faith in the Lord Jesus is to be first and foremost a love for other Christians, a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus says in John 13, 34, and 35, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, this is not meant to get the Colossians or to get anybody here off the hook when it comes to loving people who are not Christians. If you are not a believer in Christ Jesus, I want to say on behalf of the members and the pastors of Trinity Church, we love you. We are glad that you are here. We are honored that you would take your Sunday morning and consider the claims that the Bible makes about Jesus Christ. But you need to know that if you would repent and believe in Jesus, if you would put your faith in his life and his death and his resurrection for you, that you will be joining a body of people, a group of people that loves each other because Jesus who saves us tells us to love each other. Now, my brothers and sisters in Christ, this passage does not let us off the hook in any way, shape, or form because it is frequently much harder to love the people who are in the church than the people who are not in the church. This is evident because if you look at the New Testament, Paul and the other writers have to spend so much ink telling Christians to get along with each other. Look with me, if you will, at Romans 12, 16 to 18 that, that really makes this clear. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. These are not easy things to do. And they're made much harder because if you consider the people you're trying to do it with, it's a bunch of sinners. Uh, the church is not a museum for perfect people. The church is a hospital for people who desperately need the life-saving medicine of the gospel. And even if you found a church where this would be easy, even if you found a church that was full of perfect people that would be easy to love, that church would stop being perfect the moment you got there because you are a sinner. The philosopher Groucho Marx once said, I would never want to become a member of a club that would have me as a member. If we really consider what terrible sinners we've been against the Lord and the grace that he has had for us, we're going to realize that it's not easy to do this. It's not easy to love other Christians. And, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. And the Colossians were doing this. They had this kind of love for the saints. And it had made its way back to Paul. And Paul was thankful to God for that, as we should be too. Finally, Paul gives thanks for the hope that the Colossians have that is reserved in heaven. 
Uh, Paul uses the, the Greek noun and verb for hope throughout his letters to refer to both the act of hoping, the, the doing of the hope, as well as the content of the hope. And it needs to be said that hope in the Bible is not used the way we use the word hope. We use the word hope to usually express a desire, but also an absence of certainty, something we want to happen someday, but we don't really have any guarantees that it's going to happen. Uh, For example, I hope that it won't rain tonight so that I can get my lawn mowed. I hope to get a good parking space tomorrow at work. Louisville fans hope that their team will one day beat Clemson. (laughs) Sorry, I had to go there. Each of these expresses a desire, something you would like to have happen, but no certainty that it will ever happen. That's not how the Bible uses hope, though. The hope of Christians is not in this ebb or flow of earthly comfort or success. It is in the return of Jesus Christ. It is in the resurrection of our bodies. It is in the establishment of his kingdom forever and ever, and that we will reign with him free from sickness, free from death, free from sorrow, free from sin forever and ever. And though these are things that we absolutely should earnestly desire, these are things that are by no means uncertain. These are things that are guaranteed to happen. And Paul underscores this by pointing out that this hope is reserved in heaven. So he's saying this to the Colossians who are up against false teaching inside the church, opposition from the pagan culture outside the church. And in the midst of all of that, God has got this hope for them secure in a place where these things can never touch it in heaven. And that is enabling them to persevere in their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. And they are doing this to the degree that Epaphras has told Paul about it. And when Paul hears about it for reasons that should be obvious, he goes to his knees in thanksgiving to God for it. Uh, When I was growing up, my mother had a little wooden sign with a Bible verse on it in the kitchen. Actually, I think she had several of these, but but this one had this verse written on it. 3 John chapter 1, verse 4. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, I remember being a kid and walking by that sign, and I thought of myself as a Christian at that time and thinking, well, well, that's nice. I'm trying hard to follow Jesus, and that makes my mom happy. That, what, what, a nice, what a nice thing for her to put on the wall. I didn't understand the kind of joy you have in a child beginning to follow Christ until I became a parent. Now, our oldest is three years old, and she is a sinner. And she reminds us of that several times each and every day, every hour of every day. Um, and I, I, really, I, don't, I don't think that she has put her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ just yet. But we see these glimmers. Just this morning, she, she asked me, who are the members of the Trinity? Uh, and I told her, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. She asked me, well, who's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. He comes and lives with us when we become Christians. And she said, I became a Christian. And I said, well, what do you believe about Jesus? Because you have to believe and repent. And she said, I don't know. <laughs> okay. But, but we see these glimmers. We have these conversations. She starts singing hymns that we've been teaching her. She's reciting Bible verses that we're teaching her. And just those glimmers, those suggestions that God may be doing a work in her heart to one day save her gives us so much joy. 
That is the joy and gladness that Paul felt when he heard about the faith and the love and the hope of the Colossians. It is the joy that you should feel when you hear about the faith and the love and the hope of your fellow believers. And like Paul, you need to thank God for what he is doing in their lives. Now, the only way that you can do this is by knowing what is going on in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you doing this? When you greet each other, when you come in that door in the morning or when you gather for a community group this week and you ask, how are you? How are you doing? What kind of week have you had? Do you mean that question seriously? Are you giving your brothers and sisters in Christ a chance to tell you what God has done in your life that week? But this is, of course, a two-way street because your brothers and sisters in Christ are not going to know how to give thanks to God for what he is doing in your life if you do not tell them. When they ask you that question, are you prepared to say, God has done this in my life this week? He has grown me in faith, love, and hope in these ways this week. I challenge you, when you show up for community group this week and it comes time for highs and lows and it's coming, forewarning, be prepared. Have something to share. Have a way that God has grown you this week in faith and love and in hope. Because if you withhold that, you are denying your brothers and sisters in Christ a chance to give thanks to God for what he is doing by his almighty power in your life. Share that with your group and give thanks together as a community group that God is doing those things. Now, as we venture into the second half of verse 5, we're going to see Paul remind the Colossians that what he is telling them about their faith, hope, and love, especially their hope reserved in heaven, is not new to them, and it is not exclusive to them. And this provides Paul and us with our second reason to give thanks to God for the gospel, the fact that the gospel is growing both locally as well as globally. Picking up in the second half of verse 5. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. Paul reminds the Colossians first of three incredible things about the gospel. First, that the gospel is the source of their hope. The fact that they have hope did not drop out of the sky to them. It did not originate in Colossae either. Instead, they heard about it from a message from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. So this is a clear pattern in Scripture. You have Faith, hope, and love, not apart from the gospel. But when the gospel is proclaimed, it produces all of these wonderful things. So the gospel is the source, especially, of the hope of the Colossians. Second, the gospel is true. Another thing we might think that just goes without saying, how could the gospel be the source of anybody's hope if it wasn't true? But it bears repeating what the Colossians were probably up against at the time this letter was written. If you read in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul warns them about being taken captive by things that are empty and deceitful. 
Again, not told specifically what this false teaching is, but it's clearly at odds with God's truth, with the gospel that has been proclaimed to them. And over and against this, Paul feels the need to remind the Colossians that what is true is going to be found in exactly one place. It's going to be found in the gospel. And third, Paul reminds them that the gospel is both established and credible. In verse 5, he tells them, you have already heard about this hope. In verse 6, he tells them, this hope has come to you. So the gospel is not something that's new, and it's not something that's homegrown in Colossae. It's not something that they originated there. It is old news. It is a golden oldie. It's an oldie but a goodie in the best sense of that word. And Paul loves to do this. When he's up against a heresy in his letters, he takes pains to remind his, leader, his readers to stick to what they have already heard. He comes out perhaps most strongly against what is new in Galatians 1, 6 through 9, which I will read for us. Paul writes, I am amazed that you are turning so quickly from him who has called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. And as I have said before, I say now, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, a curse be on him. In the face of newfangled, innovative, cool-sounding false teaching, Paul tells the Colossians, you don't need something new from God. You need to stick to what you have already heard. The gospel that's already come to you, the gospel that has given you your hope. Now, having reminded them of their previous experience with the gospel, he then broadens their horizons by turning to the impact that the gospel is having beyond the city limits of Colossae. He says, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. This is language that's very, very common in the New Testament. It's kind of an agricultural metaphor. If you think back to Jesus and the parable of the soils in Mark chapter 4, he speaks about the gospel in terms of a seed that takes root in good soil in people's hearts and then grows exponentially, a 30, 60, 100-fold increase of fruit. This is what the gospel does. It, it spreads like kudzu. It just goes everywhere. It goes to new territory through the missionaries like Paul and his, his uh, fellow servants. And then when it gets to a new territory, it takes root in people's hearts and changes them. And people get saved. And then they tell more people. And more people get saved. And it just spreads like crazy. But this fruit and growing is not just in terms of the number of converts, but also in the, the goodness that comes out of those converted hearts. Because the gospel is the source of the faith, hope, and love of the Colossians. And in Ephesians 2.10, speaking of what comes out of a converted person, Paul says that we are God's workmanship. Christians are God's workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the gospel is growing both breadth-wise in terms of creating more and more new Christians, but it also is growing in depth as those individual new believers produce more and more good works and good fruit out of their hearts. 
And Paul wants them to know that this is happening all over the world. But, but then he makes a very, very sharp right turn back to their immediate context. Again, this is why this structure is a little bit hard to nail down. He has gone local, then he's gone global for a little bit, and then he brings it right back to the local again. He wants them to know that the gospel is bearing the same fruit there in Colossae that it's been bearing all over the world. Ever since they heard about the gospel and came to truly appreciate God's grace, it has been growing and bearing fruit in them just as it has in the cities around them like Laodicea and Heropolis, just as it has in, in Jerusalem and all the way to Rome where Paul is right now. So they are not isolated from what is happening, but it's not happening just there either. It's happening there and it's happening all over the world. And he contrasts all of this to the heresy that the Colossians were up against. Not only is this heresy false and deceitful, it is empty. The false teaching cannot do this. It cannot bring people who are dead to life. It can make you happy in your sin. It can tickle your ears, but it can't take a sinner against God and make them a part of God's family. And it can't do that same thing over and over and over again in this city and in the cities all over the world. But the gospel can. The gospel is always growing and producing fruit, and Paul wants to remind the Colossians, and he wants to remind us of that so that it will be precious to us and so that we will give thanks to God for it. Now, you're not going to see me up here leading worship. Can't even get over there. Unless we are... <laughs> you're not going to see me playing one of those unless we're really, really scraping the bottom of the barrel when it comes to musicians. But back in my college days, uh, I had a very mediocre level of ability with the guitar. And, and one day I thought, you know, I'm getting pretty good at this. Why don't I get a second guitar? I, I had a nice acoustic guitar like that with six strings. Why don't I get a bass guitar? I'll get a nice, deep, you know, four-string bass so I can play along with people and maybe play the Seinfeld theme. Um, <laughs> So I go out and I buy this thing with some graduation money and very quickly discover that I have absolutely no idea what to do with this thing. And uh, so more and more I start leaving it in its case and not playing it. It's just kind of sitting there and it, it frankly lost its appeal to me. I begin to think, why am I letting this thing take, place in my, or take up space in my room? Why did I buy it in the first place? Should I sell it? Should I give it away? Until one day, a musician friend of mine picks it up and starts playing it, and it, he, he makes this incredible music. He can play all sorts of things with it. And as I watch him play this and see what this instrument is producing, it becomes precious to me again. And I'm thankful again that I have this amazing instrument that I get to play. And even though you and I are prone to forget, the gospel is precious because of what the gospel does in people's lives. We are reminded of this fact when we see the fruit the gospel is bearing in our lives and the lives of people all over the world. And when we are reminded of that, we need to give thanks to God for the growth of the gospel. Now, we've talked a little bit about local growth already, so let me focus on, on the global. A great way for you to get fuel this week to thank God for the growth of the gospel is by talking to a missionary. And that's what the Colossians were getting to do. They were getting to hear from the greatest missionary in the history of the church how it was going around the world. 
But we have the ability to do this in a way that the Colossians will be blown away by. If you are a seminary or boys college student, you are going to class probably with some missionaries who would have some stories for you. You can ask them and you can get reasons right then and there in that conversation to thank God for what he is doing around the world. If you're not, but you have an internet connection, which I would venture to guess is most of us, you can get on the prayer list for a missionary and find out how things are going for them in India, in the Middle East, in South America, in Russia, and learn how to pray for them and have more reasons to thank God for what the gospel is doing. I'm going to give you a really, really, really easy way to do this. If you have not already, pick up a flyer at our table in the back with information on Derek and Tori Schusler who are with the For All Mankind movement. They are missionaries that we support. And they are helping to reach people in labor camps in Dubai, uh, a part of the world where Islam holds sway. But the gospel, the gospel is reaching people's hearts and the gospel is bearing fruit. And the gospel was doing the same thing in Dubai that it was doing in Colossae and is doing all over the world. So get one of their flyers, Skype with them, call them, chat them up, get stories from them so that the next time you are in prayer, you can give thanks to God for what he is doing all over the world through the spread of the gospel. And you will see that the gospel is precious because the gospel is powerful. Now for the Colossians, the gospel was made even more precious because of the one from whom they had heard it. And we meet this man finally here in verses 7 and 8 as Paul turns his attention and ours to our third and final reason this morning to give thanks for the gospel, that the gospel has been shared by faithful messengers. Paul writes, you have heard this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has told us about your love in the Spirit. The word learned there, that's a little bit of an unusual word for Paul. Uh, usually when he talks about people receiving the gospel, he uses words like believed, heard, obeyed. This is a little bit out of the norm. And it suggests that when Epaphras was planting this church, he taught them the gospel in a thorough and systematic way. They didn't get the post-it note version. They got the full, huge, thick volume version. They got the whole thing so that they could be said to have learned it and committed themselves to it. Now, who exactly is Epaphras? This is a pretty common name in New Testament times. It's a shortened version of the name Epaphroditus, kind of like how Tom is a shortened version of Thomas, so it's a, it's a short of, sort of a more familiar name. Uh, based on this verse, it sounds like he's a church planter. It sounds like he's probably the one who first planted the church in Colossae. But as we'll see in chapter 4, Paul refers to him as one of you. So, so more than likely, Epaphras is a native Colossian. He is from this town. He's the local boy who's made good by planting this church. But then Paul also refers to him in chapter 4 as a fellow prisoner. So it looks like by this time, Epaphras has moved on from Colossae. He's perhaps planted other churches, done other gospel work, and has wound up in chains, just like Paul right there in Rome. And this fits with how Paul goes on to describe Epaphras in verse 7. Paul calls him our dearly loved fellow servant. This is an awesome, awesome title. This is, this is perhaps the best title you could give anybody in the world. If you consider that in the Old Testament, 
Those who were called servants of God include Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, you know, some real ministry A-listers, people we still read about today. Paul is saying that Epaphras, he's, he's right up there with those guys. He has been a fellow servant of Christ Jesus along with us. And not only is Epaphras a fellow servant to Paul, he is a faithful one, a faithful minister of Christ Jesus. Now, specifically for the Colossians' sake, Paul wants them to know this because he wants them to trust the message. And you can trust the message only insofar as you can trust the messenger. Remember, they're being told that something else is true instead of the gospel, and he wants them to know, no, you can trust what Epaphras has told you. You can trust the gospel because Epaphras has faithfully shared it and transmitted it to you. By implication, resist that false teaching. Don't listen to the false teachers. Listen to the gospel. Listen to what has been faithfully proclaimed to you by your homegrown church planter, Epaphras. He has faithfully transmitted the gospel to them. But he's also transmitted something to Paul. He has brought a message to Paul concerning the love that the Colossians have in the Spirit. And and this ought to remind us of what we just read about back in verse 4, where Paul speaks of hearing about the love that the Colossians have for all the saints. Well, they're really one and the same because love for all the saints is love in the Spirit. It's hard to love Christians. It's hard to love anybody. But the Holy Spirit gives Christians love for the things of God and for the people of God. He gave the Colossians love for their fellow believers right there in the city. He gave them love for Epaphras, their church planter, and he has even given them love for Paul, who they've not even met. And this love in the Spirit was so profound, it was growing so much that it has made its way all the way back to Paul by the mouth of Epaphras. I mean, I, I can just picture them. They're fellow prisoners. They're, they're sitting there in prison. They, they're singing. They're, they're praying together. And Epaphras goes up to Paul and says, hey, Paul, I've got this church back home. And man, they are so full of love in the Spirit. They love each other. They love other Christians. And Paul turned to Epaphras and saying, dude, let's, let's pray right now. Let's give thanks to God right now that they have that kind of love in the Spirit. Proverbs 25, 13 says, to those who send him, a trustworthy envoy is like the coolness of snow on a harvest day. He refreshes the life of his master. But contrast that with Proverbs 26, 6, which says, the one who sends a message by a fool's hand cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. A faithful messenger matters, and the importance of a faithful messenger increases with the value of the message. If you send a message by a faithful messenger, you can breathe a sigh of relief because you know it's going to get there and it's going to be accurately transmitted. But if you send a message by someone who is not faithful, the Bible says you might as well cut your own feet off because you can have no confidence that that message is going to get to its destination or that it's going to be accurately transmitted when it gets there. That is why Paul is so thankful for Epaphras, his fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ Jesus. That is why he speaks so well of him to the Colossians, so that they would have assurance that they have rightly heard the gospel from someone who is faithful. Because the gospel matters, which means the messenger matters. 
And that means that this morning, you should give thanks to God for those who have faithfully shared the gospel with you. You should periodically thank God in your times of praise and thanksgiving that he in his sovereignty appointed someone who would faithfully transmit the gospel to you. The only way in the world that you, dead sinner in your trespasses, could believe in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and be saved, God appointed someone to do that in your life and to do it faithfully, or you would have no faith, no love, and no hope. Have you ever done this? Have you done it recently? Have you thanked God for the parent or the pastor or the camp worker or the missionary or the sibling who opened their mouth and faithfully taught you this message, who taught you the gospel that Epaphras once taught the Colossians? Let this be one more log on the fuel of the fire of your thanksgiving this week. Take time and thank God that in his wisdom, he put someone in your life so that you could hear this and by the power of the Holy Spirit believe and be saved. This morning we have seen an incredible example of thanksgiving for the gospel. We have seen the example of Paul's prayers of thanksgiving and we've seen three reasons that we should give thanks to God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I can think of no better way for us to wrap up our time together this morning by remembering and giving thanks together together to God for the gospel by taking communion. Because communion, which we take weekly here at Trinity, is a powerful visual and communal reminder and proclamation of this very same message that unified Paul with the Colossians under one Lord. The gospel that was the source of their faith, their hope, and their love. The gospel that came to them and, and then bore fruit all over the world even as it has in our midst, and the gospel that was transmitted by God's grace by faithful and reliable messengers. So as we take communion this morning, let's pause again and thank God for the gift of his son and the privilege of having heard the gospel message so that we could believe in him and have life in his name. But maybe you realize this morning that you can't give thanks to God for these things because you have never believed the gospel yourself. You have never put your faith in the righteous life and the substitute's death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if God has shown you this this morning, I would invite you, while the rest of us are taking communion, you take Christ. Believe. Believe that what he has said about you is true. Believe that you are a sinner who has broken God's law and that you need to be saved. Believe that Jesus Christ alone can save you, that he has lived the righteous life that you could not live, that he has died the sinner's death that you deserve to die, that he has risen again in victory, and that he alone offers life to you. Believe that and repent. Turn away from sin. Turn away from living to, for yourself and instead turn to follow after the one who gave his life so that you could have life. The rest of us are going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which I believe is going to be up on the screen. So I will read, and then if you'll read together with me the underlined portions. For I received from the Lord Jesus what I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So I'm going to invite the band to come up here and begin to play quietly. Our practice here is to spend a little bit of time in prayer and reflection, confessing any sins that you know of. And then if you are a baptized believer in Christ, when you are ready, I invite you to stand and walk to the back of the room. You're going to tear off one piece of the bread, the one loaf that symbolizes the body of Christ that was given for us and our oneness with Christ as a church. And you're going to dip that piece of bread in the wine, which symbolizes the shed blood of Christ that, again, is the source of our faith, our love, and our hope. Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to give us some time to prepare for communion. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that in your kindness and your mercy and your love, you sent your son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And thank you that ever since you sent Jesus into this world and he died and rose again for us, you have caused the gospel to be proclaimed by faithful men and women. And it has come all the way from Jerusalem to Louisville, Kentucky. And we have gotten to hear about that. Would you make us thankful for that this morning? And as we take communion, would you cause us again to to praise you and marvel that you've done this for us? And would you make us joyful and glad to tell others in our city, in our workplaces, in our homes, that Jesus is the only one who can save? Thank you, Father. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.